You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. In our passage today, we see a clear reflection of our own struggles in faith. The political pastor will show us some unbelieving believers as we learn how to increase in our faith and the importance of fathers in our lives. Turn with us to Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 32 as the pastor delivers the sermon, Unbelieving Believers. All right, let's open our Bibles up to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark and chapter number 9. We'll begin our reading in verse Number 14 this morning, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse number 14. This morning we're going to be talking about some unbelieving believers. Unbelieving believers, Mark chapter 9, let's begin our reading there in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and in the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou not in unbelief. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said to them, This kind come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after he is killed he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, now last week we saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw him there with Peter and James and John and how he was changed before them, and there was this glimpse of his glory. But the focus was on that work that Christ was still yet to do 
before the glory. And we saw that as disciples, we also must follow him in that way. Now, as Jesus returns down from the mountain with Peter and with James and with John, he sees that his disciples are engaged in a debate with the Pharisees. And this is how the opposition loves to work, isn't it? The enemy is opportunistic and loves to prey on those who are seemingly weak, especially in the absence of those who they think are strong or who are their leaders. Just yesterday, my son was pumping gas in the truck as I went into the store for a moment. And while he was pumping gas, someone pulls up beside him and they tried to pass a watch off to him and tried to get money from him. And my son says, well, you might want to ask my dad who's about to come back out here right now. And immediately the people sped off. And, you know, that's kind of how it works, right? People will look for those opportunities where they think someone is vulnerable. But when the strong man comes, right, when the leader comes, when the father comes, they don't want to have that same kind of engagement. And the, the enemy works that way. They, they look for the, the weak. They look for those who they think are vulnerable. They try to seize on the opportunities. And here are the Pharisees doing that, right? You got Jesus and Peter and James and John away, and the Pharisees catch all the rest of the disciples and begin to question them. They should have been questioning Jesus, maybe Peter, James, and John. And so Jesus comes to them and questions them about what they are discussing. You know, this is why it's important that we all are trained up for battle that we all understand the word of the Lord, that we all understand and are growing in our faith and are prepared. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the weak one. I don't want to be the one preyed upon. Jesus steps into the situation, though, here. He comes to them, and in verse number 16, he says, what question you with them? In other words, what are you discussing with my disciples? What's What's this conversation that you're having that I'm not a part of? Now, this is not the passive Jesus that some want to make him out to be. This is Jesus coming onto the scene, seeing his disciples being preyed upon, the the Pharisees engaging them in this discussion, and understand there certainly was a confrontational side to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He had no problem stepping into the situation here and at many other times, and he questions them, what are you talking to my disciples about? What's this discussion about? But this exchange, as interesting as it might have been, was interrupted by another scene. There was a man who was present there who was struggling with his son who was being tormented by a demon. And as that man cries out, we see the scene change. And this encounter that we read here in Mark chapter 9 lays before us the very real struggle that we all deal with concerning faith. We have a very real struggle when it comes to our belief. And we see in this story from the text a clear reflection of those struggles that we have. So we're going to look at this morning some unbelieving believers and we're going to learn how to increase in our own faith. Now, as we go back to verse number 14, I want us to first of all see in this passage some faithless followers. Let's look at these faithless followers of Jesus. 
Verse 14, it says, and when he came to his disciples. So that's important that we understand when Jesus returns, he's coming to who? He's coming to his disciples. He's coming to his followers. The people who have walked with him, talked with him, have seen him at work. He comes back to them and they're the ones engaged in this conversation with the Pharisees and scribes. Now, in verse number 17, We're told that one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, as we look at these faithful followers, I want you to notice the demon's distress that he has brought upon this family. This demon has tormented this boy, and the... The characteristics that he exhibits here actually seem to look very much like what we would call epilepsy. He begins to have these seizures, these seizures, and he's unable to speak. It's called a deaf and dumb spirit, but the Bible is clear here. This is not just some natural um, occurrence, and this is not saying a person who has something like epilepsy has a demon. But notice this, just like we saw the Pharisees and scribes capitalizing on the disciples in a place of vulnerability, Do you understand the enemy will do that even in our physical ailments and weaknesses? Perhaps this boy did have epilepsy or something similar, but the Bible is clear whatever it was, he did have a problem with a demon. This demon was tormenting him, creating all kinds of havoc. He couldn't speak. He would get thrown down. He would endanger himself from time to time. And we see this father bringing this son who's tormented to Christ. We need to understand this morning that there is actual demonic activity that has occurred and does occur. But the problem happens in Christianity. We get in these ditches. We're so good at this, aren't we? We fall off to one extreme or the other. So on the one hand, we get in this ditch of rejecting any kind of reality of demonic activity. It's like we want to stick our head in the sand and say it doesn't even happen, doesn't exist. Then you got the other ditch that wants to blame anything and everything that ever happens on a bunch of demonic activity. Right? So we find ourselves usually in one of those ditches, but we need to understand it for what it really is. The reality is there is a spiritual battle that goes on. There is demonic activity that does take place, but everything that you see happen is not necessarily demonic activity. Okay? So we need to understand that reality, but understand the reality of spiritual warfare that we engage in today. And it absolutely does manifest itself in the physical. You can't separate those two. Now, this is a real struggle for some modern-day Christians and modern-day pastors. They don't understand that, yes, we are engaged in a spiritual warfare But that spiritual is not something that's invisible. It just stays out there in the realms of heaven somewhere that's going on out there and you just can't see it happening or that's only happening in your prayer closet. But that spiritual battle absolutely manifests itself in a physical way. We physically see the results of the spiritual battle that's taking place. It does play out before us. It's why we see evil before us. It's why we have those engagements with evil people and evil activity. It's not just something that's invisible. It's material as well. It's very, very real. 
So it's just like those who just want to pray about the situation, but never take any action about a situation. See, they think they're fighting it spiritually, but don't understand the spiritual manifests itself in the physical. The problem is that we see the disciples, though, in this passage, acting in the physical without being prayed up first. And that's going to be the issue that Jesus has to address in our text today. We need to understand the reality of the Holy Spirit who exists today. This kind of blew my mind for a bit until I stopped and really thought about it. But R.C. Sproul made a comment about the power of the Holy Spirit and the power we have available to us today. And he said there's more power available to the church today than the disciples had before Pentecost. So you understand when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon man at Pentecost, some great and mighty things took place. And we saw many miraculous activities take place after that. We saw many demon-possessed people being freed. And all of these mighty works were being done after Pentecost. But the disciples before Pentecost had not experienced all this yet. In fact, Jesus was still dealing with a bunch of doubting people who hadn't quite grown up in their faith yet. Now, he gave them power to go out and heal and power to go out and cast out demons. But the Holy Spirit had not come to reside and dwell among all believers in the way that he did after Pentecost. And that same Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost is still here and available today. And to think about the power that's available to the people of God now. Because the Holy Spirit is real. And He's present. That's an amazing thing to think about. The demons brought great distress. But look at also the disciples in this passage. They were the faithless Followers, look at the disciples' disbelief in verse number 18. The man tells us what happened to his boy when the demon would distress him. But he says, and I spake, the latter part of verse 18, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Jesus shows a bit of frustration here. Because not at the man or his son, not that his son had been tormented. Jesus' frustration was at his disciples. Remember, that's who he come back to there in verse number 14. And his disciples had been asked to help this boy to deal with this demon, and they couldn't do it. Jesus' frustration was that they had been taught by him. They had experienced his power. They should know by this point, right, what is possible. They should understand what Jesus could do. They should understand the power that's available to them, and yet they don't. They've seen Jesus work again and again, and still their faith is small. Remember, just as we saw the lesson of the loaves, where Jesus fed multitudes on two occasions, And still the disciples find themselves in the boat afraid after just seeing that great display of Christ's power. And so you can understand why this frustration is coming forward. And Jesus calls them a faithless generation. Where is your faith? Your generation of people who don't believe. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? 
Jesus is looking forward, as he's going to talk about later on, how he's going to be killed, raised the third day. But he also knows he's going to send back to the Father. He's not always going to be there with these disciples. He's going to send his Holy Spirit, but Jesus is not always going to be there with them. So he wonders, how long is it going to take you before you learn, before you understand, before you get it, before you grow up in your faith? He knew that eventually, though, that they would. They'd seen what Jesus had done. They should understand the capability that he had. And they didn't. But you know, I wonder this morning, where is the faith of the people of God today? It's easy for us, right, to look at these disciples and say, how could they do this? How, how could they experience everything that they've experienced in their walk with Christ and still not have enough faith? If anybody should have faith, you would think they would. It's easy for us to criticize. But I wonder, even today, where is the faith of the people of God now? Those of us who know Him, those of us who have walked with Him, and some of us for many years, those of us who have seen His provision in our life again and again and again, why is it that we are so shaken by the cares of this life? Why is it we we get so sideways when we're opposed? Why are we so fearful? Well, we know God is there. We know God never fails. We know He's proven Himself to us again and again. We believe, or do we? (laughs) Do we? You know, I think one of the greatest oppositions to people of faith today are so-called believers who don't really believe. They call themselves Christians. They say they're church people. They, they say they're believers, but they don't really believe. This is why the church in the United States today is in this period of struggle. We've not passed on our legacy of faith. We're no longer attempting great things for the glory of God in the church in the United States. The church in the United States today stays huddled in fear, intimidated, silenced, impotent. The problem is not the power. There's no problem with the power. The problem is us. Power is available. Christ hasn't changed. The problem is our doubt. We are a faithless generation. And that's what Jesus was dealing with, with his followers, some faithless followers. But I want us to move to a second person in this story. We're going to move from the faithless followers to the faith of a father. The faith of a father. In verse 20, we're told that they brought him, this boy who has been struggling with this demon. They brought him unto Jesus. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him and fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. You see the immediate reaction, right? When that demon is in the presence of Christ, immediately he begins to torment this child again. And he asked the father in verse 21, how long is it ago since this came into him? And he said, of a child. 
Now, who does Jesus ask about this child and how long he's been tormented by the demon? I'll let you answer that out loud. Who does Jesus ask about the situation? His father. His father. This is important because today, especially in this country, we are suffering in a crisis of absentee fathers. We do not have fathers present. We're fatherless society. I looked up a few statistics about fathers in the United States of America. There's some 18.4 million children without a biological step or adoptive father at home. That's a lot. And there's some interesting research. We already know this from Scripture, but let me tell you a little bit about what research even has confirmed. When you don't have a father in the home, there's four times a greater risk of poverty. You're more likely to have behavioral problems. No, duh, right? We knew that. Twice the risk of infant mortality. More likely the child will go to prison. More likely they will commit crime. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. More likely to face abuse and neglect. More likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Twice as likely to suffer obesity. And two times more likely to drop out of school. So we know the effects of that, right? We can see it. It's pretty clear. 63% of youth suicides in America are from fatherless homes. And we can go on and on with statistics. And it's been even worse in certain segments of the population. This was not always true. In fact, if you look back to before some of our social experiments and before we kind of really went uh, the way of socialism and social just chaos, in the black homes, about 20% or so at that time, just decades ago, were children born in this world without fathers. Today, 72% of black children are born to single mothers. You see what's happened in our little social experiments that we've gone through since we have forgotten God? The statistics just continue on and on, and so I won't bore you with those. You can look them up for yourself, but it's clear what happens when there is no father in the home. Some might question, what is Jesus' view of the home? You get into this debate today with some. Well, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality or any of those things. Well, actually, he did. He said plenty. Because all of this word is his word. But if you want to look at only those words in red and only look at what Christ said, again and again you will find Jesus references husband, wife, father, mother, children. Jesus always had the understanding of the traditional nuclear family, of the home. There was no question what constituted a marriage, a family, a household. You see, we all need fathers. I said we're suffering from a fatherless society, but we all need fathers. It all goes back to the beginning with God the Father. 
And even our earthly fathers are that reflection of our Father God. Help us understand that relationship of father to son, father to child. Christ exemplified that even in his life, the relationship of the son to the father. Fathers are needed. We even refer to fathers in other areas too, don't we? We talk about the founding of our nation, we refer to our founding what? Fathers. We talk about our faith, we talk about the faith of our fathers, right? Those who have gone before us, those who have showed us the way, those who have imparted wisdom to us. By nature, by creation, by God himself, we need fathers. And that's why the feminist movement has had such detrimental effects on our societies. Let me be clear. Two mommies will never suffice. Two daddies will never suffice. In fact, it can't even happen naturally, can it? You can't even naturally have two mommies and two daddies. There's a reason why it doesn't work that way. Beyond just the physical aspect of it, God knew from the beginning of time the importance of the structure that he ordained, that he put into place of a man and a woman together for a lifetime. The demise of our society is a direct reflection of the destruction of the home. And so we're breeding a group of weak men today that don't want to or can't even reproduce. We've put ourselves in this position. Here was a father, a father who cared. A father who was present through childhood. You see that in verse 21? Jesus asked his father, how long has he had this issue? He says since he was a child, he's had it all of his life. And where has the father been? Right there. He knew it firsthand. He wasn't a guy who ran off when times got difficult. He wasn't a guy who left because there was a problem with his kid. He was a father who was present. A father who had hurt for his child for years. A father who brought his child to Jesus for help. The only one who could provide the help that this child need. Now, if there's not a picture there, I don't know where you're going to find one. Fathers have the responsibility to bring our children to Jesus. Listen, there is something that only Jesus Christ can provide that I as a father, that you as a father cannot provide our children. There's something only he can provide. He alone is their savior. He alone is their redeemer. Our responsibility is to bring them to him, to bring them to the one who can. We establish that we have Christian homes from the beginning. Our child, as they come in this world, is not old enough yet maybe to make those decisions, if you will, for Christ. But we establish from the get-go that we are Christian home. We bring up that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as they are his, that they belong to him. We institute regular worship even in our homes. Regardless of what background you're from, what confessions you may hold, whether you're a Westminster confession or a London Baptist confession, it's interesting that both of those address this very issue and establish that we must have regular worship in our homes. 
as families. And then we bring our children together with other believers for worship. Thus fulfilling the command of Deuteronomy 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently, that is the words of God, teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's a mandate we have as fathers. But when you look at verse number 22, you see that even he, even this father, has the same struggle that we have. He had a struggle with faith. In verse 22, it says, And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But look at this statement. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In essence, he says, Jesus, if, if you can do something, please do something. Now contrast this with in chapter 1 in verse 40 with the leper who comes to Jesus and says to him, if you will, you can. This man says, if you can. There's a big difference in saying, Christ, if you will, or Christ, if you can. And so we see this bit of unbelief here as the man knows that he needs help. He sort of believes that Jesus can help him, but you don't see that full confidence, do you? If you can, please help us. If you can, do something for us. Jesus points to the fact here in verse number 23 that there is no lack in Jesus' ability, only in the Father's faith. Look at what Jesus responds to him. Jesus said to him, if thou canst believe, do you like how he turned this around? The man said, Jesus, if you can do anything, Jesus says, well, if you can believe. (laughs) And so he reminds him the problem is not with Jesus' power or ability. The problem is with this man's faith. Jesus says, if you can Believe all things are possible to him that believeth. Now, this statement gets twisted around by the health and prosperity group a lot of times, and, and they think that you can just go around and believe for anything, and it's going to happen no matter what. And they eliminate sovereign God from the situation completely. Jesus Christ is not saying here, nor when you look at the book of Matthew, and we'll look at that verse a little bit later, Jesus is not saying if you're just a person of great faith, you can go around commanding and shouting and demanding anything you want, and it's going to happen because God promised it to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is no impossibility. Outside of God's will, outside of God's plan, there is nothing that's too great, too big, too high, too impossible that God can't do it. If you have faith, if you believe, it's not an impossibility with God. Not saying God's going to do everything you demand because you're a person of faith. That's not what he's saying. But he's bringing this man back to the reality of where he's at with his own faith. And you see that in his reaction in verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You can kind of hear that fear, can't you? As he says, I believe, but I'm afraid I don't believe enough. I'm afraid my faith is not strong enough. Help this unbelief that still resides in me. Give me enough belief for this miracle to take place. There was some honesty from this father. But I believe it resulted in an increase in his faith. You know, none of us 
would or could believe in God if he didn't do a work in us first. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If God didn't do a work, there would be no hope. If God didn't work in our lives, if God didn't give us faith, if he didn't transform us, we would never, never believe. See, how much faith is saving faith? It's faith enough that God provides. It's enough that God gives us. It's enough that leads us to repentance and life. And yet, we still have to grow in that faith, don't we? It doesn't just end with faith to believe to be saved and and have our eternal ticket punched. But we grow in that faith. That faith expands. We learn. We believe, yet we don't always believe, do we? We have faith, but we don't always have faith. We trust Christ enough to save us from our sin so we don't spend eternity in the lake of fire, but we don't trust Him enough to care for our children or to protect us in the presence of our enemy or to provide food for our family when we take a difficult stand against the government or our employers or enough to wade in the fray and fight the social battles of our day. We believe, but do we? He is no less able even today. I believe there would be a call to all of us this morning to make a confession very similar to what this father made. To confess our unbelief and pray that our faith might be increased in the one who is ever faithful to us. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Imagine the strengthening of this father's faith as a result of what happened that day. You know, in in his request, help thou mine unbelief, Jesus heals his son. Do you think maybe that helped his unbelief a bit that day? Jesus rebukes the spirit in verse 25 ahead of the crowd's gathering. Uh, Probably he didn't want to make any more spectacle than there already was. So he, he, he goes ahead and he rebukes the spirit, charges him to come out, and he says, and enter him no more. And as the Spirit comes out in verse 26, it says, He cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. So when the Spirit comes out, He creates so much torment on His way out that the boy is left there as if he is dead. In fact, the the crowds were told from Mark, they cried out, He's dead. Now, we don't know for sure if he was dead or just appeared dead, there may have actually been a resurrection here, but we're not told specifically that's what happened here. But regardless, this boy was left there looking at least lifeless. And what does Jesus do? In verse 27, he took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. Not only was the demon gone, Jesus completely restored this boy. And you can just imagine what's happening to the faith of this father. So how is it then that we increase in our faith. We've seen the faithless followers, these disciples, right? 
And we've seen the faith of a father, and he shows even his unbelief and his need for his faith to be increased. So how do we increase our faith? Because I think most all of us would have to agree, right? We're much like that father. We need to grow in our faith. We need to increase in our faith. We're not as strong in our faith as we would like to be. How does that happen? Well, this is the final thing I want us to look at, and that is faith in faithfulness. Faith in faithfulness. In verse 29, let's back up to verse 28. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? The disciples want to know, why could we not do this? In fact, the disciples had experienced success in doing this very thing in the past. They had cast out demons before. And they were unable to do it in this case, in this situation. And so they asked Jesus about that. Why is it we couldn't do this? Verse 29, he said to them, This kind came forth, can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now, Matthew's account gives us a little bit more detail here about the amount of faith that was available to them. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus' response was this. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus is telling them the issue here and why he's telling them to pray and fast. The issue is your faith. Remember, Jesus told the man, if you had faith, right? If you have faith, it's not about my ability. If I can, no, if you can have faith. And Jesus is saying the same thing as disciples. This issue was an issue of faith. Yes, you cast out demons in the past, but it's not always going to be like it was in the past. Some situations are different from the way they were in the past. Some some of these situations are a little harder. Some of these demons are a little more difficult. Some of the things you're going to face little stronger, a little harder. So how do you prepare for that? How do you increase in your faith? Well, Jesus says, this kind come forth by nothing but prayer, by prayer and fasting. Some issues required a greater faith, which came through praying and fasting. This is through disciplined Consistent, fervent prayer. Continually seeking after God. Now notice what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, well, this demon could have come out if you had just stopped and prayed and fasted for a little while first. That's not what he's saying. Did Jesus stop and pray and fast? Or did he just cast the demon out? He just cast the demon out, didn't he? But what was the lifestyle of Christ leading up to that time? There was this continual seeking of the Father, right? This continual communication and relationship with the Father. And it's what he's showing us. Even his disciples were not fasting at that time because he was with them, right? But there would come a time when he wouldn't be with them. There would come a time when difficulties would arise. And there would come a time when it was going to be up to them to take care of this business. He wouldn't be walking there with them. He would give them his Holy Spirit. But it was be important at that time that they become people of prayer and fasting to grow in their faith for the mission that was ahead of them. 
You see, you learn to know Him in prayer. Think about how that increases our faith. If you really know God, and you really know who He is, how much more then can you depend on Him? How long does it take you to develop faith in a person? Think about it. Somebody that you've never met, do you trust them right away? No. Takes a little time, doesn't it? You get to know them, you spend time with them, you do life with them, and over time you begin to learn more about who they are. Over time you begin to see how faithful they are to you. And you learn that you can trust them, right? Well, what happens as we spend time with our God? As we know Him in prayer, as we commune with Him in prayer, we begin to know Him and understand Him, and we begin to trust Him. And we're strengthened in our faith. We learn to know Him in our prayer, but we also learn to deny ourselves in fasting. Now, what this morning is not... This is not a message on fasting. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. But understand just the basic nature and principles of fasting. You lay aside something, food, drink, both. You deny yourself, you deny your body those physical things and cravings that it wants. You deny that self and you dedicate that time instead of filling self to focusing upon God. You deny self. And you learn Him. You remember what Jesus said about discipleship and what it involved? If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, that's part of that spiritual discipline that comes with prayer and fasting. It's laying aside self, laying aside sin, and learning of Him. When you... Lay aside self. What are you learning to trust in? You're learning not to trust self, right? You're learning to trust Him. You're increasing in your faith. You learn who you trust in. When you pray, and then you see answer to prayer. When you ask of God, and you see Him move, what happens to our faith? It's increased, isn't it? As we see Him working, as we see Him moving, as we see Him answering prayer. So we pray without ceasing. You know, that's how Paul concluded his whole discussion about this spiritual armor, about the armor of God that we put on. He concludes that section in Ephesians chapter 6, exhorting us to pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. So you got the armor on. Now he says, if you're going to go to battle, you better be a person of prayer. And the focus of that prayer, significantly enough in Ephesians chapter 6, is on the expansion, the movement of the gospel. Pray for me as I preach the gospel, opportunity for the gospel. I'm convinced that all those who say they pray for the lost aren't really praying for the lost. You know why? Because if they were really praying for the lost, they would increase in their faith enough they'd preach to the lost. We say we're going to do the, uh, I'll pray for you. James talks about this, right? A person walks into our midst. They're poor, they're hungry, they're hurting. And we pat them on the back. Say, I'll pray for you. Now go be warmed and filled. 
and we do nothing for them. Right? See, I, I pray for the lost. If you prayed enough for them, you'd have faith enough to tell them. You'd have faith enough to preach to them. You have faith enough to share the gospel with them because you will grow in your faith as you pray. How much time do we spend really in prayer? It's a discipline. Now, we pray consistently, continually, all day, throughout the day, but I'm talking about those dedicated times. How much time do we really spend before God in prayer? You grow in your faith as you are faithful. The more your faith is exercised, the more it's strengthened. It's just like the muscles of our body, right? You do an activity you haven't done before. What happens the next day? Eh, A little sore and feeling those muscles you didn't know you had, right? You never felt soreness there because you haven't done that kind of activity before. Maybe you're trying to increase your strength and so you begin to lift weights and you'll go through a process in that weightlifting where you lift, many people will, to the point of failure. In other words, I'll make these repetitions till I can't make a repetition anymore. And what happens in doing that, we're breaking down that muscle, right? We're tearing down that muscle. We're exercising that muscle to the point that it fails. And what happens? That muscle begins to rebuild. It begins to build back stronger. And the next time we go to lift, what happens? We can lift more weight than we did before. And we exercise that weight to a point of failure again. And what happens? Once again, we rebuild and we get stronger and we can lift heavier. And on and on the process goes. You understand that's a lot like exercising our faith. You learn to trust God in a situation and maybe you reach the point that you kind of reach the end of your rope as far as faith is concerned. And then you see what God does and what happens to your faith. It's rebuilt and it's strengthened. And once again, something comes along and maybe more difficult than the last thing. But you've increased in your faith. And maybe again, you're pressed to the point of failure. And once again, God steps in and provides And your faith again is strengthened. So what happens as we exercise our faith? Some of us are so lazy in our faith, though, we never do anything. We never attempt anything. We never make a move. (laughs) Exercise that faith. If you're serious about your faith and accomplishing great things for the glory of God, then get serious about denying yourself and taking up your cross in prayer and fasting. So I want to ask you these couple questions as we close this morning. First of all, are you a believer today? Are you a believer? And I pray that God may grant you faith to turn from your sin and trust Him today if you're not a believer. But secondly, if you are a quote believer, do you believe? Are you a person of faith? Are you increasing in your faith? Or are we like His faithless followers, the disciples that we saw in this passage today? Might we call out this morning as this father in our passage did. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. May we commit to become a people of prayer. who Seek after the Lord. May we be strengthened in our faith for the journey that he's called us to.
Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, how you grow us through your word. Thank you for real life examples of people who fail like as we fail, who struggle with struggles that we still face today. That even those disciples who walk with you in the flesh struggled in that area of faith. And Lord, we confess that place today for ourselves that, God, we oftentimes don't believe you and take you at your word. We fail to stand upon your truth. We're afraid to risk anything for the kingdom of God. We say we believe, but God, I pray this morning, help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith today. May we commit to be people of prayer and fasting, people of faithfulness to exercise our faith. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have never believed. God, grant them faith today that they might turn from their sin and trust you. Thank you for sending your son Christ to be the sacrifice for our sin that even as he told those disciples in our passage this morning, he would be killed. He would rise in three days. Lord, by faith, may they believe, receive their Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you would guide the remainder of our worship time. May it bring honor and glory to you, we pray in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.